0: Talk shop, baby. we are back. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be amongst the top 1% of anything in the world? Well, today is your lucky day. We have one of the top real estate brokers in America, maybe the whole world. Bob, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Alon, well, great to be here. Thanks
0: for having me. So Bob Knackle here, former founder and owner of Massey Knackle, sold that, moved on to JLL, Definitely one of the top players in the world. Bob, we know where you are today. Where did this journey begin?
1: Uh, it began uh, serendipitously, actually. Uh, I'll take you back to, uh, to 1981. Uh, I was a freshman at the Wharton School. I wanted to be the next Wall Street guy, uh, like every other Wharton kid, and uh, wanted to get a job that would look good on my resume. So um, I went around during spring break, freshman year, dropping my resume off uh, at every commercial bank and investment bank I saw in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is where I grew up. Uh, came out of a Payne Weber office across the hall. I saw Coldwell Banker. Uh, I thought the place was another bank. Dropped my resume off. Uh, they called me later that afternoon to set up an interview for the following day, which I set up. And again, this was 1981. So there was no internet at the time. So. I had to uh, go to the library to look up this bank, and when I saw it was a real estate company, I almost didn't go on the interview, uh, but they were the only ones that were hiring college kids for the summer. Took the job, loved it, went back my next summer, ran the, the market research group that I had been a member of my first summer, and then my third summer, I got my New Jersey real estate license, worked as an assistant to a an industrial broker showing industrial space, and then started with CB in, in Manhattan when I got out of school in 1984.
0: So you didn't even know Caldwell Bankers was a real estate office, and you stumbled into the broker world?
1: Didn't know, completely by accident, and it was the luckiest break that ever happened to me.
0: I love that. And you graduated from Wharton School of Business?
1: I did, in uh, 1984. Didn't Trump go to Wharton? I think he did.
0: It, not not even close to the same time.
1: No, I I graduated '84. I'm not sure when uh, when Donald graduated, but a lot of a lot of real estate folks in New York City uh, graduated from Wharton.
0: Any big players that you were in in school at the same time as them?
1: Uh, not at the same time that I remember I knew in school. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm still very active in the Zell Lurie Wharton Real Estate Center, and, and it's uh, remarkable how many. New York people uh, that are very active in the business went to school there.
0: Wow, that's cool. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, so I, I showed up my first day at CBRE. Um, you know, there at the time, CB had uh, about 50 brokers that were leasing office space, about 20 that were leasing retail stores. There were four people in the building sales division three of whom had 20 years of experience and one was Paul Massey who had just gotten out of a one-year training program. Uh, the boss said, Hey, Massey just started in sales, follow him around. He'll show you where the coffee machine is. Um, and the, the three guys with 20 years of experience weren't spending a lot of time with us. So day two on the job, we said, look, let's, uh, let's team up, work together, split everything 50, 50, see how that goes. Uh, And that was the start of a 30-year partnership with Paul.
0: Wow. What was real estate like back then, back in the day?
1: Uh, Completely different. I mean, there was, from a technology point of view, technology really didn't exist. We didn't even have cell phones at the very beginning. Um, We had no computers on our desks. There was no fax machine. Uh, You went to go show a building and you had a roll of quarters in your pocket and if. Somebody didn't show up. You walked down to the corner, tried to call them. Uh, they wouldn't pick up at their office. So you'd go back, wait another 15 minutes at the building. And if they didn't show, you walked back to the office. It was so much wasted time. Oh my uh, God. But uh, it really was uh, a very, very different uh, type of experience then. But there was a lot of trading. And actually, you know, people think that uh, because technology speeds up the uh, the, the transaction process, uh, that there's more commerce going on now, but actually there were more buildings sold in the 1980s than in the the 1990s, more in the 1990s than in the, the noughts and more in the noughts than in the the second decade, uh, this century. So, uh, actually there have been fewer buildings sold in each of the four successive decades. And what technology has done is it's allowed fewer people to do a lot more how is that possible? Today you have the
0: Black Stone, the Black Rock, headlines, KKR, all the big dogs buying like massive amounts of properties and you're telling me back then
1: more properties were selling. There was more trading. Yep. Decade by decade the no- total number of properties sold has been declining. Uh and if you look at the in the New York market for instance, you use Manhattan as a microcosm of that. South of 96th Street there's 27,649 buildings. On average, the over the 38 years, the average turnover of that stock is about 2.6 percent. So what that means is that when that there's never a lot of properties for sale, uh, and that they typically, uh, when when an investor buys a property in Manhattan, they typically own it for 40 years before they sell it. Wow! So who do you target? Target all the in terms of buyers or sellers? Sellers. Anybody that owns properties within um, a geographic area, we're always building relationships with people, trying to be there and be top of mind when they, they're ready to sell. You know, because it's always it, because people sell so infrequently, uh, it's important to be there at the right moment. And uh, the best way to do that is by constantly staying on top of them, build relationships with them, send the market information, share what's going on in the market, and hopefully be uh, the person that they think of when they decide it's time to sell the building.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So is that how you did it? How does a man go from zero to $20 billion in real estate (laughs) sales?
1: Well, it's uh, one deal at a time, basically. You know, you get the first one and then you get the second one. And uh, today, I, I always say the most important deal is the next deal. Um, so it's just a matter of, uh, you know, I, I think the real estate business is is not magical. It's not rocket science. It's a lot of very basic blocking and tackling. You just have to know who to tackle, how to tackle them, when to tackle them, and just to, to do... Th- basic fundamental things day after day week after week month after month year after year and uh you know before you know it 38 years has gone by and it just kind of uh aggregates
0: well you look great (laughs) oh thanks crushing it in the game when (laughs) i look up your name on on google first thing that pops up is your condo for sale
1: or you sold it or something no we're uh my wife and i are selling our apartment in manhattan now um and uh, that uh, surprisingly to me got a lot of uh, attention in the press.
0: It's admirable, you know, because it's like so many agents or brokers out there, and to see a man doing $20 billion lifetime sales and selling his $14 million New York City condo, it's like, wow, you know, I can do that one day. So that's admirable to my head. Well, hat. I
1: think that's one of the great things about the real estate business is that the sky's the limit. Uh, it's a business that is a complete meritocracy. Uh, you get out of it what you put into it. Um, and uh, that's something that I always loved about it. I'm very competitive by nature. I, I played baseball and basketball my whole life growing up, even played baseball in college. And I love the competitive nature of team sports. Uh, real estate in a lot of ways is a, is a competitive team sport. And in fact, uh, you know, at, uh, at our old company, Uh, We used to tell our director of HR, look for um, competitiveness in a candidate's background. Uh, Look for team sports, look for uh, captain of the debating team, uh, editor of the school newspaper, uh, you know, something that demonstrated that they had a lot of uh, a competitive spirit within them. And that's a very, very good quality for folks in the real estate business, because real estate is a very competitive business also.
0: It is. It is. I'm ultra competitive you know, to more so to myself, like in my mind and to me, you know, I don't look at other people because it's generational business, right? So it's very tough to compete with the generations. But first I compete with myself, see the become the best me that I can. And then I look outside and say, where can I dominate? You know, I'm I'm assuming you're very similar in your own mind.
1: Yeah, look, I I think that, um, you know, if you read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he says that uh, every great company figures out what they can do better than anybody else in the whole world uh, and, uh, and focus on that and stick to it. Um, and so I think that's what, uh, what we all try to do is figure out what we can do really, really well. Um, the best way within the real estate brokerage business, the best way to do that is by specializing in something, because if you specialize, you become an expert, and that expertise differentiates you from everybody else that's trying to do uh, brokerage. And that differentiation creates a competitive advantage. So um, there's a lot to that. I think you have to be able to not only have a uh, a value proposition that's different from everyone else, but be able to articulate what that value proposition is. Uh, and that helps you get business.
0: I love it. When we right before we started the podcast, I broke out your book, and one deal stuck out to me: uh, this big portfolio. And you're like, "Yes, very wealthy man bought it." So you typically work with ultra wealthy people, or funds, or you know, whatever, right? Very, very wealthy people are your typical clients. You're in New York City, basically the center of the universe. What is it like working with super rich people all the time?
1: Well, it's, um, it's interesting. Um, and I think that's one of the things I love about the business is there are so many different, uh, different personalities out there and a lot of characters, uh, very uh, vivid characters in the real estate business. And, uh, you know, most of what I do is deal with private individuals and, uh, and families although we do some institutional work as well. Um, but the uh, dealing with the, the individuals is really interesting because of the very, very wide array of personalities that you deal with from you know, very, very wealthy CEOs of, of big public companies to uh, the proverbial little old lady that owns a couple of buildings. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we have to treat them the same way. Uh, and and everyone gets treated according to their, their personality or what you think will resonate with them. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to do the same great job for everybody, whether the, the little old lady or the CEO. Any of these big players ever try and screw you out of commission or anything like that? Well, that uh, that happens occasionally, but that's uh, all part of the business, and you just have to know how to handle it. Anything that sticks
0: out like a crazy story that you could go into. You don't need to say names or any of that. Yeah, I I, know.
1: Let's see. I I remember one time back in the uh, early '90s, we were selling a a property, and uh, the buyer came to us and said, "Hey, you know, I'd like you to uh, to take a, a lower commission." Uh, and, um, you know, cause you're young and I'm young and we're going to do a lot of business together over the years. And I said to him, why would I take less commission on this deal when you're not even paying me? The seller's paying me. Uh, and in all of my transactions, I've always been ex- the exclusive, uh, agent for the seller. Um, I, I wanted to always represent just one side of the the transaction and I picked sellers, but, uh, I thought that was so, uh, interesting that the buyer thought he could get me to take a lower commission, even though he wasn't paying me. So, but you, uh, you have things come up all the time and sometimes, uh, you need to make an accommodation to get a deal done or, or something pops up at the last minute, a sidewalk violation, uh, something that needs to be addressed. And if it's been a very contentious negotiation, uh, sometimes you have to give a little bit to get the parties over the goal line. But, um, you know, you do what you have to do to get the transactions closed. What was the biggest price reduction you've ever
0: seen while a deal was in contract?
1: While well, a deal a was retreat. in contract? Um, uh, back in 2009, we had a number of deals that were uh, renegotiated that went into contract before the Financial crisis occurred, and then were set to close in the during the heat of the financial crisis, uh, and there were some transactions that you know the prices were reduced as much as twelve or thirteen percent. Um, so it can be significant, even if people have big deposits up. Um, if market conditions change so dramatically, you have to be able to adjust. Is there like a prime example of one deal that comes to your mind? Uh, there is, but I'm not going to say what that deal was. Oh, no, come on, uh, Bob. Nope, well, won't won't go there. But let's just say the uh, the uh, the the buyer attempted a very significant reduction, uh, didn't get it, ended up losing their deposit, wow. which was uh, uh, almost a uh, well, an eight figure deposit was forfeited on that trade. You're kidding me. Nope. How much? ten million dollars. A ten million dollar deposit was
0: gone. Yep. Holy shit! It that happens. That's uh, that's the business. Those are those are crazy numbers to just forfeit on a deal. But you're saying that was in 09.
1: So um, amidst like the crisis, right? And the during the heat of the the financial crisis, don't forget those times were kind of crazy. You had uh, companies that were viewed previously as AAA companies, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG, and all of a sudden, uh, the whole market was in turmoil. And, um, you know, it was a very different set of circumstances when it was time to get to the closing table. Should they have forfeited that deposit? Uh, In retrospect, no. But at the time, it was understandable.
0: So political, Bob. So political. (laughs) You just gave
1: them a win on both sides. Look, it uh, it worked out uh, for... Uh, my client who kept the deposit, we subsequently went on and sold the property for him. Um, and, um, you know, the the investor who forfeited the deposit, he's doing just fine today. Very, I bet. Very, very wealthy, wealthy guy, very successful. And um, just, uh, I guess, probably chalked it up to just the cost of doing business. Gave up a $10 million deposit. That's a big, big, uh, a big one. Yeah, that's know? a
0: big one. So the business that we're in is a constant hustle, right? I'm on the investing side. You're on the brokering side. The business you're in is really you networking, 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 tons of relationships and hustling all the time. What are the negatives in your eyes? I, we know the positives, the fruits of your labor, but what are the negatives?
1: The, the, the biggest negative about the brokerage business is that the harder you work and the more you get done, the more work you make for yourself, so it's like you're never you, you never are done with everything, uh, and that's one of the things you have to you know I think the biggest challenge that people have in their lives is trying to come up with the right balance between your job, your personal life, your friends, your family, your faith, your health, uh, and that that balance for everybody is different. Um, but in the real estate business, you literally could work twenty four seven, three sixty five, 365 and not get everything done. And there are oftentimes like a couple of months, uh, out of the, or a couple of weekends out of the month, I will pretty much work the whole weekend. Uh, and I find that on Sunday night when I've worked the whole weekend, I feel really great because I got so much done. But then because I got so much done on the weekend, Monday morning is an avalanche of new stuff that I have to deal with. So as I said, it's like the more you do, the more work you make for yourself. And so finding the right balance of figuring out what what are your priorities, what you want to do, uh, what you need to focus on, those are all very, very important because you literally could be working around the clock. And um, as I said, the more the more you get done, the more you have to do. Is that why you sold Massey No, no. We sold Massy Knackle for a couple of reasons. One, when we started the business, we we built the business with the intention of selling it one day. Okay. Um, Mind it, you, I I'm that was before my generation. Yeah, no, no, so no. I, not... I get it. We we you know we started the business. Um, we we always said, look, let's do everything we can to make this business as valuable as possible, and it would be cool to sell it one day. Uh, we almost sold the company in 2007. Um, And uh, for a variety of reasons, we didn't. Uh, But it became very clear to us in 07 that if we did, if and when we did sell the company, we would be on five-year contracts with whoever the buyer was. So at that time, we said, well, gee, in, in in 2015, Paul, who's two years older than me, will be turning 55. Um, our thought was that the perception of the value of our contracts would be better if we were on those five-year contracts when we were in our fifties, as opposed to in our sixties. So we said, all right, in 2014, if the market isn't in the tank, we should look at selling the business at that time. Um, and so, uh, you know, we went, we, we didn't sell in 07, although we had a, a very good offer we had a $50 million offer from one of the big global firms. Um, didn't sell. 2009, the market was horrible. We wished we had sold, but made it through 2009. By 2014, um, the market was really doing great. Um, Actually, uh, just again, luckily in 2014, there were more buildings sold in New York City than ever before in history, 5,534 buildings were sold in that year. It was actually your top grossing year. It was definitely my top grossing year. And
0: coincidentally, you sold the company in your top grossing year.
1: Right, right. So, and again, just all uh, of the stars just lined up. It was a perfect time to do it. Um, and uh, we were very lucky. But, um, you know, we we built the business with the intention of selling it. And uh, just in in retrospect, we sold at a perfect time. All by luck, not by design, other than the fact in '07, we said, if the market's not really bad in 14, that will be an opportune time to sell. And at the time we sold, we had 250 employees. And mind you, it started Paul, myself, and a secretary in an 800-square-foot office, uh, and we grew it to 250 people in four offices in New York. We had, for 14 years in a row, had sold more buildings in New York than any of the other firms, the big nationals, the globals um, you know, by a factor of three. Wow. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was a great thing. And I think part of the reason why the company was so successful was that we had a very disciplined system. Uh, it was also a time where technology did not create the transparency that it creates today. So a lot of our internal databases were created by sweat equity and people focusing on one neighborhood, digging in, getting that neighborhood neighborhood under their fingernails. Um, and that took a lot of work back in those days. Uh, today, you go online and there are a number of places you can go find all the information that we had to work so hard to get manually uh, that you can just go on and get easily today. So I think if we started the company today on the same basis and the same platform that we started it on in 1988 – there's no way it would be as successful as it was then. Did you
0: sell it for less than $15 million?
1: No, we, we sold the business for $100 million. Wow. The bid we had in, in 07 was 50, 50 Oh, 50. Right, right. And we ended up selling oh, it for it. 100, right.
0: You doubled it, but you also did fantastic every year, commission time over time.
1: Well, not every year. Some years, you know, 09 was a tough year. And there are times when, you know, in, in investment sales, um, Revenue fluctuates with market activity very significantly, is very highly correlated. So when volume is going down, commission revenue goes down. When volume is going up, commission revenue goes up. So
0: What are you seeing right now?
1: Uh, right now, volume is, uh, is on track to be up in 2022 from 2021. But the dollar volume of sales is on pace to be up about 28% over last year number of property sold is on pace to be up about 12 percent however the uh, the fed policy and in raising interest rates uh really took effect about two months ago and so I think fourth quarter numbers are going to be down very significantly uh, and so I think that the market will not be up it, it could be uh relatively flat compared with where we were in 2021 those the 2021 was up a, a decent amount from where we were in 2020, which was the the low point of the market. Um, you know, to give you a sense in um, in looking at transactions and, and using Manhattan as a microcosm, Manhattan uh, investment sales volume over 10 million dollars uh, was about 11.1 billion, which okay. was a cyclical low. Uh, got up to about 15 billion in 2021 um and we're on pace to be about 21 but uh it is uh it's not going to end the year on that pace because the fourth quarter numbers are going to be down i see i see and you're expecting them to stay low through 2023 i think at least for the first two quarters of 23 because don't forget in investment sales um the the deal process takes about nine months nine to 12 months start to finish so the fact that people are, are nervous today and are not actively signing as many contracts as they were a year ago, uh, that's going to lead to reduced sales volume in the, the fourth quarter and the first two quarters of next year. We have to see what happens with interest rate policy. It looks like interest rates are going to continue to go up uh, probably through the first quarter of next year. Uh, so if that's the case... Um, you know, sales volume, uh, could be down, but the, the thing we always have to remember is that, uh, capital and, and the movement of capital really impacts how the market performs. Uh, capital tends to move with a herd mentality. And so capital right now, uh, is, uh, is fearful and markets, the way markets perform, it's always a, um, a, a fight between fear and greed. Today, fear is winning, uh, and it always goes back and forth. And there is time greed will be winning again, uh, and when capital decides to get back into the game, it's going to come back in a very robust way. If you think about the massive amount of capital that's out there, private equity firms uh, held about $2 billion in 1994. Today they hold three hundred billion dollars. Wow! So when that capital comes back into the market, it's going to come back in a big way and go crazy. And I, I'm sure the market is going to be great again. Are you preparing for that? Uh, absolutely. Wow. Always, always preparing by by getting our our research um, up to snuff, by uh, creating new weapons to go into battle with. Which in, in our market, uh, you know, weapons are uh, resources, information, data uh, marketing materials, things to go out and, um, you know, be successful when that next wave happens. And it's just a matter of time. I don't know when it will be exactly, but I know it will come back. Uh, and when it comes back, it's going to come roaring back. How many people do you have today? Um, in our private capital group at JLL, we have about 21 people. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we, uh, are very active in, in the New York city market. You used to, you obviously focused in New York City. Yes.
0: You never stemmed out?
1: No, you know, during uh, the last few years, particularly in the multifamily sector when the, the rent laws changed in June of 2019, <sighs> uh, it really, it hurt the market significantly. And a lot of my clients who for decades only bought New York City Multi were investing all over the country. Uh, a lot of brokers that uh, that I know at other firms were all of a sudden going to, Texas and Florida to do transactions I didn't do that I stayed uh, stayed in the city Um, and uh, maybe that was a good decision maybe that was a bad decision but that was the decision I made and uh, I'm completely New York City focused
0: speaks volumes to why you're the most successful commercial broker in New York City and it sounds like you know every single building that the city has Well,
1: I I don't know if I know every single building, but we try to, uh, you know, look at the market very, very analytically. Uh, And, uh, you know, I have a great team of folks that I work with, and uh, we're constantly trying to uh, improve our knowledge. Uh, You know, we say in the brokerage business, you have two main resources, our knowledge and our time can't get any more time you have to try to use time as effectively as you possibly can and if you use it efficiently you're almost like creating time but there's always an opportunity to get more knowledge and the more knowledge you are uh, the better advocate you can be for your client the better advisor you can be to your client Uh, and that's what we try to do is help our clients make the best decisions possible
0: what's the most creative deal you've
1: ever seen done um uh, most creative, well, there are uh, a lot of them. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in several transactions that were uh, nominated for uh, the Real Estate Board of New York's Most Ingenious Deal of the Year. Um, several of those have been land assemblages. Uh, there's one transaction that, uh, that we did over in the, uh, in the Diamond District on 47th street, that was a very, very complicated transaction because of, we we found out that there was an employee working for the owner who was taking all the offers off the fax machine and letting one of the buyers who was interested in buying the property, know what all the bids were. Wow. Uh, So there are always, always wild things that happen, uh, in our business. But, um, you know, thinking outside the box and thinking creatively looking for creative solutions, uh, is uh, is a great way to, to get things done.
0: You know what? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll loop back on that question. 40 years in the business, right? You've seen it all in New York. What do you think the best deal you've ever sold was?
1: Uh, the best deal I've ever sold. I don't know what the best deal I've ever sold was, but I'll tell you what I think was one of the, the best deals ever made. Um, and that was in the early 90s. Uh, there was a portfolio of properties that uh, that a bank was foreclosing on. Don't forget during the SNL crisis was another time that was very, very tumultuous in the business.
0: What's SNL? Uh,
1: the savings and loan crisis. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, and uh, And uh, during that time, uh, a lot of people very few people had money. If they had it, they were afraid to spend it. Uh, properties were going at very, very significant discounts, um, and there was a portfolio of properties that uh, a bank had foreclosed on. Uh, it was called the New Rock portfolio. was pur- purchased by uh, Andy Davidoff at uh, at Emmis, um, and uh, I think he's done something like returned forty times the equity investment to his investors over no way. over time. That was a, I think. Um, well over a hundred properties in that portfolio. And I, I think Andy still owns a few of those, um, but it's been unbelievably successful. And, you know, if you look back, like be, be, people today are, are nervous about what's going on. Value uh, is having uh, negative pressure exerted on it today in the city. People are fearful, interest rates are going up. Uh, and I tell people that if you look at investors who have Invested over a long term, and ask them when the best deals were that they ever bought. They'll tell you they were at times when the market was really, really bad. Um, in during the early '90s, during the savings and loan crisis, in uh, in 2001 after 9/11 and the dot com bubble bursting, uh, in 2009 and 2010, great financial crisis. And I think we're entering another time when um, when People are going to make deals that they'll look back on 20 years from now and say, wow, that was one of the best deals we ever made. You have to have two things, though, to do it. You have to have, number one, the capital to do it. And number two, you have to have the guts to go and, and make these big bets today when everybody is really scared. But those, those, these are the times when people will make the best deals of their career.
0: Did you guys hear that? This is our time. Spoken from a man that's seen all the cycles.
1: If you're an investor, I'll tell you, it's, we're, we're seeing it. Values are coming down. A lot of people are going to be forced to sell. If you think about what's happened with the, the very unprecedented, uh, unprecedentedly quick increase we've had in interest rates, it's been the, the, the fastest rate increase we've ever seen. And I, I really believe that the Fed has misdiagnosed the problem. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll explain that as, you know, if you go back to 2019 and you say, all right, by the end of 2022, where is employment going to be relative to where it is today? I think you would have projected that there would be three or 4 million new jobs added. Uh, we've added 800,000 jobs. So the fed has been saying, well, we're going to keep raising rates until employment, you know, cools down a little bit. I don't think employment is overheated. It's not like we added 6 million jobs. Uh, We added 800,000 jobs. I think that the the reason the the employment market is tight is because we're undersupplied. uh, And because of that, uh, the Fed uh, thinks that the economy has a disease that it doesn't have. It's like if you went to the doctor and you have disease A, and the doctor diagnoses you with disease B, and is going to aggressively treat you with a big medication program for disease B that you don't have, it creates issues. And I think that's what's happening today.
0: Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, unfortunately. So there's going to be this tremendous uh, downward pressure on value. Um, And what we're seeing is that uh, people who have mortgages maturing are going to have to put fresh equity in to effectuate refinancings. So uh, if you have to put that fresh capital in, number one, do you have the capital? And if you have it, do you want to put it into that particular property? If you don't have the capital, how do you get the capital? And if um, you,
0: don't, uh, if you or, don't want to do it, you call Bob Knackle. <laughs>
1: that's it. No, you, some people may have to sell. Exactly. People may have to sell. Or somebody looks at their portfolio and says, hey, I have uh, 15 buildings. Some are A's, some are B's, some are C's. I w- really want to hold on to the A's, so I'm going to sell the C's to get the capital, so I could do the cash in refi to hold on to the A's that I want to hold on to. So I think there's there's a uh, a situation here where the fact that some people will be forced to sell uh, will exert even further downward pressure on value. So um, are I there think- any
0: asset classes that you see in particular?
1: Well, I think every asset class kind of operates a little differently. Uh, we're seeing the, the multifamily market has been very interesting uh, in that, you know, it took a, a hit when the, the guidelines changed in, uh, in June of 19, uh, took another hit uh, uh, during COVID. Uh, but now what's happened is with the, the sharp rise in interest rates, it has basically made buying a home unaffordable. Uh, for a lot of people, so those folks have to live somewhere, so they're renting. So, consequently, we've seen significant increases in in rent levels. Uh, so rents have risen. That's helped multifamily values, although the sharp rise in interest rates is impacting what an investor could pay for the property because of the the amount of debt service they have. Um, so, but that that market is is. Very interesting in the way it's operating. If you look at the land market, which we sell a lot of land in the city, um, we've seen construction loan pricing go way up. Uh, That's impacting what people can pay for land uh, in the office sector. Um, The work from home experiment still is uh, is with us. Um, And so uh, what aggregate demand for office space is going to be moving forward is still a little unclear. Uh, that's impacting the value of office buildings with uh, people not getting back to work. That's impacting the retail space that's at the base of these office buildings yep. and in prime midtown, midtown south, and downtown.
0: Oh, I have a deal in midtown. Got to talk to you about that.
1: Okay, love to talk to you about it. Yep,
0: uh, I definitely have to talk to you about this. We can't forget.
1: Okay, but uh, but every you know every product type is is operating a little bit differently. But um, they all are being impacted by what's going on today.
0: Fascinating. I can't wait to see what happens. You know, more so eager than anything else.
1: Yeah, well, these are, you know, these are the times when um, when uh, fortunes are made and lost. Um, and, um, you know, I think that for a smart investor uh, who, again, has capital and guts, there there are great um, acquisitions to make. And um, it's, it's going to be a time when um, existing property owners are going to have to be very, very creative about uh, the way they hold on to what they want to hold on to.
0: I see. I see. Well, Bob, before we wrap this up, I wanna I want you to leave us with one last piece of knowledge. If you were to start over again, with everything you have—forty years of experience, twenty billion dollars in lifetime sales—where would you start?
1: Um, you know what? I, uh, for me personally, I I love being a broker. Um, I, you know, I occasionally get asked if you weren't a real estate broker, what what else would you do? What would your job be? And I I never have given an answer because I truly don't know what I would would do other than be a broker. I I think that. Um, you know when when we formed uh, Masseynacle, we did it on a a geographic orientation. Um, and that was something that was a differentiator for us. Uh, I think if I had to go back and start over and do it again, I would uh, have product specialists layered within a geographic matrix. because I think product specialization is very, very important. Um, You know, because we all have such limited time um, as a broker, you want to have everything that you're doing all day long be accretive towards getting the next deal. And if you're selling a retail property, an office building and a multifamily building uh, and you sell those three and then you're going to uh, pitch another multifamily building to sell, Only one of those three transactions is helping you get the the next one. The the seller of that multifamily building doesn't care about the office building you sold or the retail building you sold. So I think that focusing on one particular thing is very, very valuable because then every single transaction you work on puts you in a better position to get the next one. So I think the um, product specialization with a geographic framework um is uh would would be a better system than the one that that we implemented. Um again, I wouldn't go back and change anything we did cuz I'm very happy with the way that that turned out, but I think that um uh, a combination of the the product specialty and the geographic specialty makes for a very very powerful skill set.
0: Well said, Bob. That was awesome. So happy you came out! Thank you so much. This was great, Alon.
1: Great to uh, great to have been here with you.